If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me uh, once again uh, to the book of Acts. My kids asked me, or a couple of my kids asked me yesterday what I was going to preach on. And I said, preaching on the book of Acts. And they said, you've already preached on Acts. A lot. When are we going to get out of Acts? And uh, I said, well, eventually we'll get out of Acts. And maybe this is the Lord's way of telling me maybe we need to take a break from Acts for a while. I don't know. Uh, But we're continuing as I want us to do at this church. I want us to... to teach God's Word. I want us to walk through God's Word and not merely pick and choose what we'd like to hear, what we think it would be fun to hear, uh, but to uh, let God's Word speak to us each week as we work our way through what the Holy Spirit has given to us. And so uh, we've been working through the book of Acts. We come this morning to Acts chapter 13, which is where we've been the last couple weeks, but we're almost through uh, this chapter We've been talking about ourselves as a missionary church. That's where we've been planting our thoughts. That's where I've been seeking to plant our thoughts. God's challenge to us in His Word has come to us as a corporate identity. As we have focused on this collective work that we're called to be and do as His church. So some of the themes that we have been focusing on, have been reflecting God's heart for the nation, striving for strength that we might be those who send, having a sense of urgency that reflects itself through fasting and prayer, all the while dependent and recognizing that this ultimately is God's work. That one sentence sums up the last four weeks. Perhaps you thought, you wished I had said that before and not all the other words, but Those are just some of the things of of what defines a missionary church. A church that is not just focused on its own comfort or ease, but it's focused on spreading the name and the fame of a Savior and a God who is worthy to be praised, who is worthy to be proclaimed. And today, at the end of chapter 13, we come to the heart of mission to the story that undergirds it all, to the story that must be spoken, that amidst all the good that we do as the church, must never get lost. Today we're going to talk about the missionary message. The missionary message. And I'm going to read chapter 13, verses 13 through 52. It's quite a long passage, but bear with me. It takes about five minutes to read, but as you listen, recognize that this is God's Word. This is God's truth to you. There's benefit even in simply hearing it. Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga, in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul stood And motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and those of you who fear God, listen. 
The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up from with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything with which you could not be freed by, from the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews, incited by the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you know what this is? Maybe you've got some of these out there in the congregation. It's kind of hard to see. Anybody know what this is? It's a coffee sleeve. That's right. It's a Starbucks coffee sleeve. But this isn't just any coffee sleeve. No, this is the latest Starbucks coffee sleeve with Starbucks's Starbucks's Starbucks latest evangelistic campaign entitled Steep Your Soul. Let me read it to you. Tivana and Oprah invite you to take a few moments to pause and to reflect each day your own personal steep time. And then each sleeve has an inspirational quote from uh, America's leading spiritual advisor, Oprah Winfrey. My quote says, The only courage you ever need is the courage to live the life you want. Well, that got me curious, so I went online, wanted to see what the other sleeve says. What else Oprah could teach me? So she says, Live from the heart of yourself. Seek to be whole, not perfect. Know what sparks the light in you. And then use that light to illuminate the world. Follow your passion. It will lead to your purpose. If you are, you are here not to shrink down to less, but to blossom into more of who you really are. And then the last one, be more splendid. Be extraordinary. Use every moment to fill yourself up. Couldn't help but think about my coffee sleeve as I was preparing this sermon, drinking my Starbucks. Thanks to some of you who got me Starbucks gift cards. And I couldn't help but think about the fact that this saying and then the the rabbit trail that I got on to find out all the other sayings from Oprah, that these sayings are not benign. They're not harmless. I mean, do you hear the heart of her message to you as you sip your coffee in the morning? A message that is digested by literally millions of people across our planet. You. 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 It's all about you. If you go to the website uh, of this campaign, steepyoursoul.com, it gets even worse because it highlights her, her Sunday morning, Sunday morning at 11 a.m. show 
called Super Soul Sunday, in which she interviews everyone from Shirley MacLaine to Eckhart Tolle, asking them what steeps their soul, what feeds their soul. Well, what's, what's my point? What's my point in bringing all of this up? My point is not to slam Oprah. She seems like a nice lady. She does good interviews. But it's to make the point that a message is being preached. There's always a message being preached. There's news that is being proclaimed, that is professing to be good news, that is being proclaimed in the sleekest of ways, but it is a message ultimately that has no life. And as we come this morning to Acts chapter 13, we are reminded not just of some outdated, historically bound story that Paul told to a distant city in Asia Minor. No, we are reminded of our story, of our message, of the message that is life. And the message that the world does need to hear. And news that really does fill the soul. And news that, thank God, draws my attention away from me and on to another. Today we come to the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul, the man formerly known as Saul, a sermon that I think reminds us, well, reminds us of a lot of things, but I want to focus our attention on two truths this morning that this sermon reminds us of, things that indeed ought to be at the heart of who we are and at the heart of our message to a hungry world. And the first one is this, the promised Jesus is the center of history. The promised Jesus is the center of history. If I had a nickel for every time I heard this phrase growing up, Nathan, the world doesn't revolve around you. You are not the center of the universe. Man, I would be a rich man. Now I'm the one that's saying that to my own kids, for indeed... That's the natural inclination of all of our hope, all of our hopes, and all of our hearts. We hear it in Oprah. It's all about me. Yet Paul comes to this ancient city of Pisidia, Antioch, and he says, there is a central point to it all. There is one who's at the center of everything, but it's not you, it's Jesus. He is the meaning, the purpose behind everything. He'll later say to the church at Colossae, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, He might be preeminent. Jesus is kind of a big deal. 
Before we dig into this sermon, I want us to be brought up to speed about where we are. Where we are in this story. This is a historical account. So, last week we were on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, the island of Cyprus. The disciples began on the eastern coast, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas began on the eastern coast. They worked their way all the way to the western coast. They've wrapped up their preaching tour, essentially, of this island, and now they're heading back to the mainland. And they're heading in a northwesterly direction, taking them to what is the modern-day Mediterranean coast of Turkey, if you know your world geography. They're going to work their way about eight miles inland to the city of Perga, but they're not going to stay there. Instead, Luke tells us that they're going to take this hike further inland on a journey that actually was pretty dangerous. It was a pretty treacherous journey physically as well as a journey that was, uh, was dangerous, covered with uh, bandits and the like up to the city of Antioch. And it's at this point that Dr. Luke, in his retelling of this story, of this history, he gives us this little tidbit that we just kind of blow by. And it's the tidbit that John Mark leaves. John Mark, at some point, had joined Barnabas and Paul on this journey. And before they head up this treacherous road to Antioch, before they leave Perga, John Mark goes back to Jerusalem. Well, why does he do that? Well, we don't know exactly why John left. And it's not really important to the story. But it is worth pointing out that this became an issue with Paul. That Paul considered John leaving them as desertion. That they didn't leave on good terms. But John Mark actually ditched Paul and Barnabas. A couple things have been speculated. One, they thought maybe John was just worried about this dangerous trip. This road from Perga to Antioch was a dangerous, treacherous trip. Maybe he was just worried about uh, what would happen on that trip. Others have speculated the fact that John Mark, who was Barnabas's nephew, they were related. John Mark doesn't like the dynamics of what he sees is going on here. What's happening here in, in this part of the book of Acts, and you'll notice it as you read the account that Luke gives, is that we hear about Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And now there, there, there seems to be a shift that's happening. And from here on out, we're going to hear about Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. It's as if Paul kind of comes into his own and becomes kind of the leader of this party, the the leader of this trip. And indeed, as church history tells us, these are his missionary journeys. That's how we know them, because Paul is the significant figure that God uses in the lives of the ancient world. But it's thought that maybe John Mark didn't like how things were playing out. That his uncle was getting trumped by this former persecutor. And you know what? It's just a reminder for us that here in the apostolic church, from the very get-go, there's already relational dynamics that are broken, that are tricky, that have to be worked through. 
We'll return to this story as Paul brings it up in a couple chapters. He brings up the issue of John Mark leaving the party. But whatever reason, John Mark leaves. They travel up this treacherous road another hundred miles to Antioch. Now, this is not the Antioch that we started at. We're not making a huge circle. This is the Antioch in Pisidia, that region. It's also known as the region of Galatia. Paul will write his letter to the church at Galatia. Galatians, he'll write to these people in a couple months. This is one of actually 16, talk about confusing, one of 16 Antiochs in the ancient world. So here we're in Pisidia, Antioch. And it's there that Paul and Barnabas find a largely Jewish population alongside Gentile God-fearers, and they were there to speak. They were there to proclaim. It's very clear from what Paul preaches Uh, Since this is kind of a sermon about a sermon, it's very clear that what Paul preaches, he is in a Jewish setting. It's a Jewish context that he's in. We're going to see in the future other cultural contexts that Paul finds himself in. But there in the synagogue, the Shema has been recited, the prayers have been spoken, the law and the prophets have been read, and now Paul seizes this opportunity. He's actually invited, a divine appointment. They invite him to speak. And what does he say? He says, your history revolves around Jesus. Jesus is the point of it all. Listen to how Paul recounts. Look, look, look with me how he recounts the history of the Jews. He says, God chose. God made them great. God put up with them. God gave them inheritance. God gave them judges. He gave them Saul. He removed Saul. He raised up David. From this man, he gave Jesus. Now, Paul didn't have to recount the history of Israel this way, but he deliberately emphasized and accurately conveys and puts a focus on the sovereign movement of God to bring about the Savior of not just the Jews, but the Savior of the world. And that's where everything culminates, in the promise fulfilled. God keeps His promises. Paul reminds those synagogue listeners of what God said was coming, what God had prophesied through the prophets, what He had spoken through the psalmists. We just looked at Psalm 16, that passage where He says, let not your Holy One see corruption. And we ourselves were reminded about how that pointed us to the resurrection. He says it did. It was all about Jesus and what He has done. And it's that resurrection of Jesus It's the fact that you can't go to Jerusalem and you can't find His body. It's that resurrection that proves His case. That proves who He said He was. And it's the backbone of all that Paul and Barnabas were about. It's the backbone of all that we're about. Some of us as men have been studying this book, Lifted, We just finished it last week, experiencing the resurrection life. And this last chapter was 
talking about mission and talking about the impact of the resurrection on our mission. And he had a great quote in there that I want you to read. He says, one of the reasons why many today believe that all religions have their own toehold on spiritual truth is that such truth is assumed to be abstract and unverifiable. It's not measurable or open to empirical study or scrutiny. It's all, it's all out there, beyond our reach. But the resurrection of Jesus upsets this apple cart. It deals with this world, with this history. This resurrection concerns time and space and things that can be scrutinized. And for Paul's Jewish hearers, they had to deal with the resurrection of Jesus. And for us in our modern Northwest context, it's no different. What are you going to do with Jesus? The resurrection and the accounts of His resurrection. Even this very history in the book of Acts of these apostles dedicating and devoting their lives and their deaths to this man, to this risen Lord. You can't ignore Jesus. He's the focus of it all. He's the center of history. No less today than he was in the first century when Paul first proclaimed these words. Well, what effect should this have on us? Well, I think it reminds us of who God is, of God's sovereign initiative, of His pursuing love. One of the phrases that I found striking as I read and studied this passage, this passage is filled with God being the initiator, God being the pursuer, is that little phrase in verse 18, He put up with them. And don't read that phrase as if he put up with them in kind of a uh, tolerant, he just tolerated them kind of tone. That's that's not the way that God put up with them. Just kind of tolerated them. Now the rest of the story makes it clear. He put up with them means he was patient with them. As the psalmist says, he remembers we're dust. He bears with us. He waits for us. He endures our failings and brings them what they desperately needed, though they showed that they didn't want it so many times. See, this big picture that Paul gives the God-fearers of Pisidia Antioch and the Jews of Pisidia Antioch, he gives to you this morning. It's all about Jesus. He's the center of history. It all revolves around Him. That's the first thing I want us to be reminded of, but there's a second, real brief, we'll end here. There's a second truth I want us to think about, and it's simply this. It is God who brings about life. So believe in the One He has sent. If Paul draws our attention to the fact that history revolves around Jesus, 
He also draws our attention in this sermon to the fact that it's God who brings about life. So believe in the one he has sent. See, in this passage, we have a bit of, of God's sovereignty and our responsibility as humans colliding. After pointing his hearers to Jesus, Paul essentially draws a line in the sand and he says, it is through this man that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And he doesn't say, please believe him. What does he say in verse 40? He says, beware lest you miss what God is doing. You want to be free from the burden of not measuring up, then you must believe in the one whom he has sent. And the message to you this morning is the same. To those of you who may be here and don't know the Lord Jesus, the the message is to believe in the one whom he has sent, the one who rose from the dead, the one who is at the center of history. And if you know and love that Jesus, this is the message you carry out, not in an unapologetic, not in an apologetic way, but in an unapologetic, unashamed way. Beware. This is your God. Yes, it's God's orchestration, but you are responsible. And Luke reminds us, as he did last week, as Paul finishes this sermon, that Ultimately, this is God's work because there are some who respond and there are some who don't respond. There are some who beg for more and want to hear more that next week. And there are some who are filled with jealousy and anger and revile Paul and his message. It wasn't up to Paul to produce the results. It was up to Paul to faithfully preach the truth. Brothers and sisters, this is the missionary message. This is the sovereign grace that we proclaim. And as we proclaim that message, as we proclaim that good news, indeed, verse 48 is true for us. As many as were appointed to eternal life will believe. Just as Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's this clear indication that God brings life, but when he does, there is belief. Well, let's close with what I think is one of the impacts for us upon our missionary message. Besides the grace and the wonder and the awe at being reminded of God's relentless redeeming grace, I think this reminds us of how we talk about the gospel. It should give us confidence to talk about the gospel, to proclaim that story, as Paul did, but it also reminds us that it's not about us. It's not about the person that we're talking to. You see, there's a me-centered gospel. There's a me that focuses and proclaims the truth of who God is and what He does in a me-centered way. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Why don't you try Him out? 
Why don't you try him on for size? See if he fits you. Or there's a message that is focused on God. God created you. You are His. You are made for His glory. You won't find any satisfaction in anyone else. You need to bow before Him. If we go back to those, some of those Oprah quotes... Oprah says, live from the heart of yourself. Seek to be whole, not perfect. God's Word says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy before Him endured the cross. Seek first His kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Oprah says, follow your passion. It will lead you to your purpose. 1 Corinthians 10 says, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Oprah says, you are not here to shrink down to less, but to blossom into more of who you really are. Be more splendid. Be more extraordinary. Use every moment to fill up your life. And yet John said in John 3.30, I must decrease. He must increase. Brothers and sisters, we have a missionary message. A message that flies in the face of so many messages that are being proclaimed in our world. And it's not just a system of beliefs. It's not just a worldview. It's a God who saves people for His glory, who sent His Son and loves them. And a God that deserves to be worshipped by all. Paul went into that synagogue. He went into that city wanting to make Jesus famous. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus is what history is all about. He is the one that God has promised, and He is the one who demands our allegiance. That is our message. That is our confidence. May we proclaim it to our own hearts, to the hearts of our children, and to our neighbors. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your servants who have gone before and proclaim the truth of who You are. And give us a glimpse of of the sovereign sweep of history. A history that finds its focal point in the giving of Your Son. The one that You promised way back in the garden. As You said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And You have done it. And that victory is ours. That hope is ours. Oh, Father, give us confidence in that message. Give us boldness to to proclaim it. Give us winsomeness to insightfully, in a way that honors You, take people's focus off of themselves into the God and the Jesus that they need to fix their eyes upon. Oh, use us and direct us, we pray, as a church, as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.